0: Blessed Lord, we give you thanks for your word and through all of the um, books and letters that it's transmitted through, and we thank you for this book of Acts. And as we begin this study of your word, we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and eyes and mind to see, to recognize the ways that you have been at work through history and the way that you continue to work in your church. In Jesus' name, amen. It's surprising that doesn't happen more often, actually. I, I'm, I'm one of those who uh, often, when I sneeze, I get I don't know, Anne, what do I get? Four or five sneezes? Seventeen.
1: Right.
0: I've always heard, I think it's just an urban legend, that if you, you, know, you can sneeze so many times, your heart will stop because it skips a beat or something. Hey, can anybody confirm or deny this? I'll just continue to live in fear uh, each time. Yeah
1: don't do it
0: while you're driving. No, don't do yeah, don't sneeze while you're driving if you have if you can choose choose it. I want to start um, by uh, plunging us right into the story a little bit before we back up and get into the introductory stuff. And to do that, let's go to Acts chapter 9 for a little bit of of prologue here for the book as a whole. Acts chapter 9. And this is a um, familiar story, but it's an important story for grasping the overarching story of the book of Acts and what we're going to be uh, looking for and and seeing the ways that God is at work in it. So, Acts chapter 9, starting with verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might... And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision. in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, And he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. All right, thus the story of Saul's conversion. Yes, Court? This is a minor point that I've always been confused about. Go ahead.
2: When they're talking, they refer to the person or the voice they hear. Yes. Lord, yeah. is that like us saying, Sir.
0: Yes, okay, good question. So Court's question is, when um, Saul says, who are you, Lord, is that a confession of faith or is it something more akin to us saying, sir? And it's that latter thing. What's that? It's lower case. Yes, a, low, a lowercase, Lord. So it's him saying, you know, he's just heard this booming voice that has struck him blind, knocked him off his donkey there, and he is overwhelmed and clearly he's in the presence of some great power, He doesn't know that it is the Lord, certainly not the Lord Jesus, but not even God the Father, the Lord God. But he has this sense, okay, there is some kind of great power here. Thus, he is saying, who are you, Lord? But I would reckon that Luke, in in sharing the story, also has a sense that there's a double meaning to it, right? We know that it is the Lord Jesus who's talking to him. And so there's an irony there that Paul, Saul, is already making a confession when he doesn't realize it. So, yeah, good question. So with this story, it kind of thrusts us into the middle of things, and we see what's going on and what's at stake in the book of Acts. So what's happening in the book of Acts is this mission of God. uh, Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God, and now in the book of Acts, that mission is continuing. The fact that uh, Saul slash Paul loses his sight and then regains it, that's not coincidental. Because in a certain sense, the whole book of Acts is about people who are blind spiritually now being able to be made to see spiritually. To see God's promise made true in Christ Jesus. Paul is especially sent to the Gentiles, for those who are outside of the the circle of Israel. Peter uh, goes to the the Jews. But both of them uh, have this calling to bring God's truth to open eyes that were blind those that were in darkness, that they might see light. There's the mission. But here, too, we have that sense of the conflict. As Ananias realizes, wait a second, this guy Saul, everybody's heard about how he's an opponent to your people, the way. You notice it was capitalized there, the way. This was the first name. We'll see this show up elsewhere in Acts. This is the first name for the Christians. Even before they were called Christians, they were simply called followers of the way. Probably hearkening back to the Lord's words in John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. So you have this conflict set up between the people of God going out to bring the good news and those forces that would oppose it. Is this gospel, is this seed going to take root and grow? Is the word going to multiply? Will the the gospel prosper or not? Is it going to be snuffed out? Thinking back of Jesus' first parable, the parable of the sower and the seed sowing. We also here get uh, an introductory to several of the dramatis personae, as Court would say, or, you know, the main characters of the story. (laughs) So first of all, you have Jesus, of course, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit also acting to open the eyes of St. Paul. Paul himself is there, as well as the other disciples. I mentioned already Peter. Of course, here we have Ananias, but many other minor characters besides. And then you have the persecutors of the church. Now, it's interesting, one character that you don't see there and that doesn't um, out and out show his face in the book of Acts is who? Well, Luke. We'll we'll talk about Luke. But when we think about the opponents of the church, the arch opponent of the church that you think of is who? Satan. Satan. It's interesting. Satan is very much in the background. And St. Luke doesn't so much draw out his presence. But as we're looking through, we'll see how he is um, operating through opponents of the Lord. Because we have we have demon possession. We've got all kinds of stuff. Acts is just a thrilling book. I want to share this um, quote uh, to you from a 19th century guy named E.J. Goodspeed. Why are people not, don't have names like E.J. Goodspeed anymore? I don't know. They all died out in the 19th century. But... He writes this, he says, Where, within 80 pages, will be found such a varied series of exciting events, trials, riots, persecutions, escapes, martyrdoms, voyages, shipwrecks, rescues, set in that amazing panorama of the ancient world, Jerusalem, Antioch, Philippi, Corinth, Athens, Ephesus, Rome, and with such scenery and settings, temples, courts, prisons, deserts, ships, barracks, theaters, has any opera such variety, a bewildering range of scenes and actions and of speeches passes before the eye of the historian. And in all of them, he sees the providential hand that has made and guided this great movement for the salvation of mankind. There's a lot happening in Acts. It is an exciting book, a lot of drama, and I'm excited to, to get into it and study it with you. Sorry, Sally, go ahead.
1: Um, when you at your sermon today, I was thinking of... Uh huh. And it says this man is my chosen instrument.
0: Yes, right. And um, God has gone to extreme measures. Yeah. in Choosing Paul. Yes. And I was
1: thinking, you know, you we were talking about the chosen people that were chosen. Uh huh. How much? And there's some people instances like, well, maybe the Luther, that he's gone to extreme measures yeah. to choose and bring to the. Face. Yes. And I was thinking, well, you know, does he go <coughs> to
0: that much trouble to other people to fall away like Pharaoh? Sure. He, he was brought
1: up for the, the opposite reason. Right. And it was just, I, I don't know, I guess I was just spinning my...
0: <laughs> yeah, no, but you, I mean, you make a great point. As, as Paul himself admits later, writing to Timothy, he says, I was, I'm the chief of sinners, right? <laughs> and it's something that he mentions again and again. Here was, I, I was an insolent opponent to the people of God, but then, I like how you put it, the length that God went to in order to uh, pluck Paul for his team now. He says, ah, 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 now you're going to be one of mine. And it just emphasizes and underscores, one, yes, the length that God will go to in his grace, that nobody is beyond the pale, beyond the love of God. For all intents and purposes, Saul was a terrorist to the people of God. But now God says, no, now I'm going to, to take you for my team. See, um, But also, it's... Um, It emphasizes for us that anywhere, from anywhere, God can make these folks, um, the the people that he's going to be his chosen instruments. And in fact, it's even more powerful that Paul is essentially an anti-authority. He's somebody that they shouldn't trust, um, except and unless God himself did something miraculous in his life.
1: Uh But he had the education and the intellect to be able to do this and also it was quite um, his background that he was persecuting and now was converted. It yep. was quite a testament. Yes. All of that was quite a testament. Yeah. He
0: was a good subject. Absolutely. No, in retrospect, we see how much it makes sense for Saul to be drafted into the Lord's army because so much, like you say, of his background prepared him for it, um, and then especially now to have that testimony, which he often goes back to in his letters. So let's go now. Um, with that kind of prologue and that sense of what awaits us with the book of Acts, let's go back to the chapter 1 and the first couple of verses and uh, just do some of our basic introductory type stuff um, with the book of Acts. And uh, I'm going to walk through this, and if you have um, other questions about the book in general, um, today's a good day to, um, to go over it. So, but number two on your handout, the book of Acts is part two to a history of Christian origins, as it were, written by St. Luke. So you notice this already in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Okay, So already here, he's alluding to his first book, which is, of course, what? The Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. Now, he doesn't um, say right here, I, Luke, am writing this to you, nor does he say that in the Gospel, um, but from at least the second century, Luke was identified as the um, author of this gospel. St. Irenaeus says that, and uh, Jerome, and several other, others of the church fathers, uh, for a variety of reasons, not least of which, um, we'll look at um, some of these verses here, which um, help to validate it from within the scriptural testimony. But the testimony of the church from the very earliest days is that St. Luke was indeed the writer of this gospel. Do you guys know? Was Luke one of the apostles? The uh, first twelve? No. He was not. But he he was best buds with St. Paul. And um, that will come out later in, in the book of Acts at points. Um, Luke, as he's writing, lapses into the first person plural, which is to say, we went on this trip. You know, we were there. He was a first-hand account to many of the things that happened here. And in places where he doesn't have a first-hand account, he has a second-hand account from Paul. You know, you just imagine them sitting around the fire and Paul regaling Luke with these stories. I mean, it's a pretty cool thought to have. But I mentioned that prologue or the uh, beginning of the book of the Gospel of Luke, where Luke says, "Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also." having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Yeah, listen. Did they
1: ever decide who this Theophilus really was?
0: Oh, we'll talk about that in just a minute. But good question. But first, uh, just a couple more things about Luke. As you, as you hear that prologue from the Gospel of Luke, do you get the impression that Luke is kind of a slapdash writer, like I just got to get this down while I can, or is, does it seem like it's more measured and and thoughtful? It's more measured and thoughtful For sure, right? He's
1: more of a philosopher
0: or a, a, historian. Know, a historian. Yes, historian, right. <laughs> um, Luke uh, probably has the best Greek of all of the gospel writers. Um, he is the uh, the. Depth of detail, um, it's the longest of the Gospels. Actually, if, between Acts and Luke, we have more from uh, St. Luke in the New Testament than any other author. Um, he writes these, these great narratives and um, underscores for us that he's not just you know, uh, throwing out some things that he happened to hear on Facebook or something like that. This is true news that he has researched for himself in order that Theophilus, and by extension all of us, might have what? Did you catch that? certainty, certainty. He doesn't want us to be left in the dark wondering about the um, teachings of our faith, the stories that people might have heard. No, this has been a thoroughly researched account that we can trust um, that, that Luke himself has that, that firsthand knowledge from. Yeah, correct.
2: Mark traveled with Luke. Right. But would Mark have written so that Luke could read his and say
0: I'm going to add to this. Okay, this that's a great question. So, Court's question is okay. would Mark? So, Mark was uh, among these buddies too, and we'll see Mark show up later in the Book of Acts. In fact, this is where a decisive division happens, an argument happens uh, among the apostles because of Mark, in a sense. Um, would Court's question is would Mark have you know written his gospel and you know maybe had Luke proofread it or maybe they decide okay who's going to come out first? A lot of those questions we just we don't know. And in terms of the ordering of the Gospels, you know, which one was written first, um, uh, scholars tend to put Mark as the earliest, actually. Um, And then Matthew and Luke and finally John. Um, One of my teachers at the seminary argues really forcefully that uh, he thinks Matthew is the earliest. Um, And then Mark comes along later as more of, um, as in his telling of the story, which is much shorter than Matthew's, um, to highlight some things that uh, Matthew and Luke maybe didn't highlight as much. We probably will never know in this lifetime what their particular order is. And at the end of the day, it's not so important. I mean, what's beautiful and what God has given to us, he could have just given us one gospel account, right? If we just had one gospel account, that would have been enough. But as it is, we have this you know, wonderful uh, multifaceted diamond of the four gospels which each you know, bring to the fore different things about our Lord, while at the same time, of course, all having the same story. It's not like in one of them, Jesus decides he's going to join the circus and go to India, right? With all of them, it tells the same central story. The Lord, the Messiah who came to die and to rise again for us. So, long-winded answer to your question. A couple other verses that uh, mention Luke as well. In Colossians, um, Paul writes that Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Demas? Um, this is you know, the main reason that we tend to think of Luke as the doctor. Um, also, sometimes it's highlighted that he has a more of a specialized medical vocabulary than you see certainly from the other gospel writers, but also would have been exceptional in his time. Uh, he's mentioned again in Philemon chapter 1. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So here we have Luke again and again as a central character in this early drama of, of the church, and once more is uh, taken to be the, the writer of the gospel and the, this book. All right, number three on your handout here. The purpose of Acts is to demonstrate how the mission of Jesus continues through his church. Now, there's, it's hard to just identify one purpose for this book, so this is kind of sufficiently broad, but at the end of the day, this is really what what uh, Luke is about here, demonstrating how the mission of Jesus continues through his church. So Luke continues, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. All right, brief word on Theophilus, and then I want to um, continue that line of thought. Um, Leslie asked, do we know about this Theophilus, who he was, any, anything about him? And the short answer is no. We don't. Um, and, but there's two theories about him, both of which I think have some pretty good weight behind them. The first one is this, is that um, Theophilus was an um, a early Christian disciple and a person of some means so that he could essentially be a patron for Luke. Um, I mean, it was common in the ancient world that if you had a patron, someone like you would with a piece of art, you know, you could commission a piece of art. That likewise you could commission, um, that Theophilus would commission St. Luke, Luke, I know that you travel with Paul, that you you know this story. Would you be willing to write down for me and for the benefit of others a well-researched account so that we don't just have the oral history but that we have it written down? Um, And so this is uh, probably the most common view is that Theophilus was just a well-to-do early Christian who had the means to um, commission Luke to do this and thus Luke essentially um, does his dedication page to Theophilus. Okay. But that's really just an inference from um, the way that Theophilus is invoked here at the beginning of the Gospel in the book of Acts. The other theory, which I think is kind of interesting, is that the name Theophilus um, literally means lover of God. And uh, some people have suggested that Theophilus isn't an actual person, but that this is sort of a nickname for Christians. Uh, That we are all, so to speak, Theophiloi. That we are lovers of God. And so um, Luke, as he's writing this, kind of personifies his audience as Theophilus. So that each of us, as we read it, we would hear it as addressed to and written for us. Which, in the end, it is. It's written for all Christians. Um, So I kind of like that theory as well. And actually, it could be both, right? It could just so happen that Luke says, oh, great, my patron's name is Theophilus. This is wonderful. Everybody's going to know. it means lover of God. I, I don't know for sure. But do one or the other of those strike you as more likely? What's, what's your take or your thoughts on that? <clears throat> yeah, go ahead, Bill.
2: Uh, I definitely line up with the second one. Uh-huh. Because it, it isn't wait well, as you said, uh-huh. Theo is... It, it, God, yep. Well, it could be religion, could it not? Could be more broader than God?
0: Uh, possibly, but I mean, t- well, okay. typically or it's. Whatever. yeah. But it,
2: it is two clear names. Yes. Uh, and so I, I just can't. I would think that he would have done something more to identify a specific person. Uh, than just using a generic
0: a, name yeah a, gen, a generic name it w- it was a genuine name so he, it wasn't a coinage we have records of that of that name elsewhere but you're right I mean it seems it almost seems too uh, too perfect so yes, Sally
1: well you know in the introduction it says um, an orderly count for you is that well for us it's both and singular but in the Greek, is that singular or
0: plural? that's a good question I not my Greek in front of me but before we go I'll, I'll double check on that that's a good question that would be that would to me I think would definitely tip the scales in the second direction the
1: singular is the one. right the most excellent.
0: according to good Greek it would um, it would still just be singular um, but uh, who knows there might be a sleight of hand I'll double check that before we go okay good anybody else want to weigh in on that yeah court
2: uh, all through the Bible God seems
0: to use those double things. Yeah, right. So I go along with your... The both and? The both ideas. I like the both and theories. Good. Well, again, we may never know, so I think um, both of them have validity, and uh, until we learn something otherwise or the Lord Jesus returns, you are welcome to to think what you like about that. All right, number three. No, number... Oh, I wanted to continue with that. So... um, he says, in the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up. What's the key word there? Oh. Notice this. All that Jesus began to do and to teach. Isn't that interesting? Well, what do you mean Jesus began to do? No, this is the, the bulk, of, that's his whole ministry until he was, the day he was taken up, talking about his ascension. But this is um, uh, just a, a deft, slight way in which um, Luke is pointing out the ministry of Jesus doesn't stop with his resurrection and ascension. But it's continuing by the power of his Holy Spirit and in and through his church. And the book of Acts is really the this, this story of how that mission is continuing now through the body of Christ. I'll give you just one example from Acts. And there's many and we'll see them as we go along. But from Acts chapter 13... Notice this, a verse that Paul um, invokes here. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Okay, now here's why that's interesting and significant. Who is the light of the world? Jesus is. He is the light of the world. I mean, that's stated very emphatically in John chapter 8. And these very same verses, it doesn't have the um, marking there, but it's quoting from um, Isaiah. I believe it's Isaiah 49. That very same verse is applied to Jesus in the Gospels. I have made made you a light for the Gentiles. That's the Lord. He is the light of the world. Ah, but now Paul makes this move. He says, "So the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made y'all a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth.'" So the idea here, the bottom line is that mission of Christ is continuing through his people. He is the light of the world, but you, you know, you get a real uh, beautiful picture of this with on uh, Christmas Eve with the candles, right? in other churches that have real candles and not the turn-off, turn-on ones like we used here, um, where there's the one candle and all the other candles are lit from the Christ candle. This is the idea. Christ is the light of the world. He is the source of that light. All of us, we draw our light from him. But now that mission, that light, is continuing through all of us. It's a, a beautiful theme, and we'll, we'll be um, drawing attention to that throughout the, our study. All right, number four. Number four. This book has sometimes been called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever heard that before? Mm -hmm. Um, The technical name for it is the Acts of the Apostles. You see it there in your Bible. Um, But the Acts of the Holy Spirit kind of makes more sense because the point is not so much what what the apostles are up to, although that's what we tend to follow. It's the way that the Holy Spirit is working through them. right? And uh, look at this. Spirit or Holy Spirit appears 60 plus times in the book of Acts. Everywhere you look, there's the, there's the Spirit working. In these first few verses, Luke gestures in that direction. He says, In the first book of Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach till the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. In Acts chapter 2, of course, the story of Pentecost, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Acts chapter 7, the account of Stephen. Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then again, Acts 13. This is a really interesting one. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so on. Um, Throughout the book of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit is the one who is animating and guiding and directing the work of the apostles so that it's not, in the end, their work, but his work. Now, I would hasten to add here, just because we would say the acts of the Holy Spirit, that doesn't mean that Jesus or God the Father are somehow sidelined with all of this. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. God the Father is the one who has sent the Spirit, who has sent his Son, Jesus. All persons of the Trinity are working together. But perhaps in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit um, is seen even more front and center in his operation through the apostles. So I think that's the best way to kind of understand that. All right, number five. Jesus' resurrection was irrefutable. Now, Paul said, or, uh, I'm sorry, Luke says this again in, in verse 3 of chapter 1. He, Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Um, okay, it says by many proofs. And the Greek word there is um, even more technical and specific irrefutable evidence, okay? This is, this is uh, exhibit A, in other words, saying that Jesus in his time together made it clear beyond a shadow of a doubt for those with ears to hear and eyes to see that he was risen from the dead. Uh, you have, just for example, from 1 Corinthians 15, when um, Paul says that he, Jesus, appeared to Cephas, a.k.a. Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So here you have the testimony of people at the time that Paul was writing of hundreds of people who saw Jesus alive. When Paul writes that, he's saying in effect, "Don't believe me," you know, like uh, Lavar Burton used to say, "Don't take my word for it." You know, go. Anybody remember that? Reading Rainbow. Um, and us, thank you. Um, Go and talk to any number of these other folks who are still walking around who saw him alive. Of course, we read that today and we're like, ah, if only I could do that. Let me give you two other um, irrefutable proofs. I mean... Of course, anybody can refute things, come up with counter-arguments. But let me give you two extremely strong arguments for the resurrection, in addition to, of course, the biblical testimony and all that we have here. These are historical, cultural facts. And uh, if people want to try and um, explain them away, they can, but I think unsuccessfully. The first one, um, which you have probably heard before, is arguably the, the strongest uh, one of these evidences is, is the fact that each of these apostles, with the exception of John, went to their deaths confessing that they had been and seen been with and seen the resurrected Christ. Now, why is that so powerful? Because you can just imagine if you know Sam had been harboring some lie about whatever uh, whatever it might be, and you know uh, what's that? What is it, Sam? What what is it, Sam? You can tell us. And he was pushing it, doubling down on it, holding, holding out. He's like, I'm, go- I'm just going to keep this. I'm going to go with it as long as it is. Until finally, I just can't take it anymore. And being crazy pastor, I say, we are going to kill you, Sam, if you don't tell us the truth. Right, this is getting really dark. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs>
2: Sam won't come back. <laughs>
0: right. Yeah, I know. You never know what's going to happen in Bible study. <laughs> At that point, Sam, do you continue the, the, the ruse or do you own up to it and say, all right, here's the truth. A lot. That depends on <laughs> what No. Any, any sane person is going to, at that point, say, all right, it was all a big joke. We weren't ready for the whole Jesus thing to be over. We were having so much fun. We were enjoying being whipped and beaten up and you know, having our names impugned and our families disowning us. That was just such a good time. We wanted to keep it going. But now if you're going to kill me for crying out loud, all right, yes, we made it up. But they don't do that. Instead, each and every one of them go to their horrific, painful deaths. And even John, who dies a quote-unquote natural death, according to tradition, was boiled in oil, um, but the Lord preserved him through that. And I mean, he was exiled, as we know from the book of Revelation, and many other things. Um, so all of these guys went through incredible um, feats of heroism and bravery and courage, which is only explicable <laughs> if they were actually telling the truth. Like, we've really seen this guy alive, and we're going to go to our death holding fast to that. And it's not just the apostles either. I mean, it's many other disciples besides. Um, but to me, this is still the strongest kind of historical evidence of the, the truthfulness of the resurrection. Okay? And if you were uh, a lawyer, um, there's a, a book, Not uh, well, there's, the, of course, the um, Josh McDowell one, evidence that demands a verdict. But there's another one from an uh, uh, LCMS guy, Craig Parton. And the book is called, anybody know this one? Do you know it, Chip? Um, I've got it on my shelf. But it's an apologetics book. If you're interested in these things, he is a lawyer. And he um, you know, adduces um, several of these examples. And he says that's the strongest argument. Here's a second one, though. So, so, uh, okay, so I assume
1: there's documentation or historical documentation of those martyrs.
0: Oh, OK, yeah. That's a fair question. So, like, well, these are made of people Right, so um, Chip's question, so we have historical documentation, verification of these apostles, of these martyrs, yes, right, and that uh, in many cases from third-party sources, which is to say not just um, kind of hagiography or you know, great stories of the saints, but also from historical accounts. There's a great book. I, every time you leave Bible study, you guys leave with like six books that you have to read, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, um, it's, I've got on my shelf also, it's called The Christians as the Romans Saw Them, by a historian named Robert Louis Wilkin. And it's all sources um, from primary sources from non-Christians writing about how they saw Christians and what they understood of the gospel. And so it's sort of a backdoor verification of, uh, of the, the truth of the gospel. And it's just it's fascinating. The second um, proof, which to me uh, is, is so rock solid and um Today, you know, people might not recognize it for what it is, but um, N.T. Wright brings this out, the theologian-historian N.T. Wright. Imagine if you uh, kind of Rip Van Winkle style had fallen asleep for a while and you come to and the next thing you know, everybody is saying, thank God it's Monday. And and, thank God it's Monday. Yeah, because the weekend's about to start. You know, this, this weekend, Tuesday and Wednesday. What are you talking about? Everybody knows the weekend is Saturday and Sunday not anymore. You know, thank God it's Monday. If, if that happened, you know, as you come out of your stupor, like you'd be thinking, wait, what could have possibly happened to have changed on mass, you know, on this mass scale, the, when everybody keeps and celebrates the weekend? That would tell you that something significant and cataclysmic had happened. Am I right? This is essentially what happened with the resurrection of Jesus, and the celebration of the Sabbath. Because for the Jews, the Sabbath was what day? Saturday. Saturday. And if you know anything about early Judaism and the Old Testament, you know that the Sabbath was taken with dead seriousness. and still to this day, right? The Sabbath was central to their celebration and practice of the faith, that weekly day of rest. This is the day when we gather together, we remember God's creation and his redemption of us, um, that's the day that is set apart. Within just a few years of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, the early Christians, remember almost to a, uh, to a man and woman of whom initially were Jews, right? Who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Now they were celebrating the Lord's Day, not on Saturday, but on Sunday. And they were doing that because it was on Sunday that what happened? Resurrection. The resurrection. This is already attested to within uh, the scriptures itself, in 1 Corinthians 16 and Revelation um, chapter 1, um, where it talks about the Kuriakes, Greek word, meaning the Lord's Day, denoting Sunday. So that within the time that the Bible itself, the New Testament writings were um, recorded for us, the Sabbath had moved to Sunday. The only, again, I won't say the only. But the best explanation for that is something cataclysmic happened, something like, oh, I don't know, somebody rising from the dead in keeping with his promises and the prophecies of the Old Testament. Those are just two uh, historical, cultural arguments where you don't even have to defer to the Bible to talk to folks and say, okay, you've got to account for this. How is it that this happened? And then you can also just talk about, I mean, I, I enjoy talking about the fact that here, why do we even still gather today when this obscure you know, Galilean philosopher, if that's all you want to call him, moral teacher, why are we still getting up on Sunday mornings? Why, why are there Sunday mornings? Uh, and we're getting up to celebrate this still 2,000 years later. It's crazy. Unless, again, he actually did what we say he did. Okay. Yeah, Court.
2: Paul Meyer... Yes. In his talks, and you probably
0: heard. Yeah, very much so. Paul, so Paul Meyer, um, this great blessing of our church. Still, I, did any of you go to his lectures this summer yeah. at camp? He's still doing it. God bless him. He's, he's north of 90, I'm pretty sure. He's 93 or 4. 93, and he still was plugging his cruises. Uh, yeah. so. <laughs> but his, his uh,
2: comment is, if Jesus had died, the Jews or the priests uh-huh. said, "Wait a minute! Yeah, come here. We'll show you the grave. Oh yeah, we'll show you exactly." The but they couldn't do it because there was
0: habeas corpus, right? Present the body. You got it. Show it. You know they don't. They didn't. So that's right. Skeleton in God's closet is the the one that's especially on that, right? Yes, Ian.
1: Are there any other cult leaders who died who are whose cults are still going?
0: <laughs> uh, Good question. So and asked, are there any other cult leaders who died and their cult is still going? I mean, Islam. Um, well, In the but of
1: Muhammad being the prophet, right, exactly.
0: exactly. So, I mean, there's, there are rough um, parallels, but, you know, Muhammad is regarded as a prophet, not as the Messiah per se, much less as God. Um, similarly, Buddhism is uh, strictly speaking, atheistic because, um, uh, of course, the, the Buddha died, and that, they didn't Latter-day have that belief Saints. about it. What's that?
2: Latter-day Saints.
0: Latter-day Saints uh, with Joseph Smith. But again, it, actually, um, and I think I've drawn this out before, the closest parallel to um, Latter-day Saints and to Mormonism is Islam, really, <laughs> where in both cases you have a Latter-day uh, Prophet, supposedly. Um, so... Yeah, that's a great question, and and it really does underscore the point that when these guys died, I will say this: that there were many other would-be messiahs who uh, were emerging, as you would expect. This was a promise that was well attested, promise and prophecy throughout the Old Testament. There was many, many guys who were emerging and declaring themselves the Messiah. They had huge followings, but then were eventually stamped out and killed, and you know it all fizzled away. Yeah, of course, but the Jews knew
2: when this was supposed to take place that's why the Messiahs were coming out of the
0: woodwork Well I mean there was, there was they definitely a strain out now because... yeah, there was a strain of apocalypticism that using you know some of the numerology from the Book of Daniel and elsewhere but it wasn't it wasn't like that clear that you could say oh it's going to be then but to be sure, there were people who thought now is the time there's the Pax Romana there's a lot of other historical um, contingent factors that helped it to make sense but yeah Sally.
1: Um, I can't remember the man, but when they were debating about Jesus, whether he was the Messiah, this uh, one, maybe it was a Pharisee, or one of the officials there said, if this is from yes. God, it will be perpetuated. If it will just die. Yep, up. yep, yeah. exactly. Well, that was
0: Paul. And that was, uh, it wasn't Paul that said it. It was um, uh, a Gamaliel? Yeah, a Gamaliel, I believe, yes. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was so very ironic. just before.
1: Yep. So he was saying maybe i
0: before Exactly. Yeah. Yep, that's right. Yeah, you're Didn't uh, Paul Meyer always
1: say that the writings of Josephus uh, were the non religious historical writings.
0: Yeah, so Josephus is one of them. Where I mean Josephus was very religious, but he was he was Jewish. Jewish. Yep, yeah, not uh, not a Christian and so um, that's one of the sources where it's very clear. He talks about he talks about John the Baptist, and he talks about this uh, supposed Messiah and Josephus yeah, tells in detail in his um, Jewish Wars and Antiquities. He talks about, you know, all of these failed messiahs who emerged, and uh, but the way Christianity is still going and, in fact, growing. One more thing. Yeah, go ahead.
1: Well, you were talking about all these other religions, but Christianity, and they all say, oh, Christianity, oh, awesome, and all of that. Yeah. Oh, you know, they want to believe in their heart, Right, right that Christianity is different because Jesus did something for us and all the other religions. Yes. They have to do something for their...
0: Yeah. No, and this very much comes out in the book of Acts, that Christianity, the message of the gospel, does not present itself as simply being a member in good standing of the world's great religions, but that this is a message and a truth that overrides all others. And that all those other things can only find their coherence and their sense. Paul especially does this in his speech in, at uh, Mars Hill, the Areopagus, in chapter 17. What you worship is unknown, I declare unto you. All of these other religions now, um, I'm not going to say they're subsumed under Christianity, but they are subservient to the, um They are just groping in the dark to the truth, that light that has been revealed in Christ who is the light of the world. Um, I know that the kids are going to be uh, coming out here. Let me um, just briefly give you the last last two points here, and we can pick this up in greater depth next week. So number six, I've kind of gestured at this already. The kingdom of God continues to be the focus of of the proclamation. So as um, Luke says, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. This was his very first sermon. Matthew chapter 4, the first words that Jesus says in Matthew's gospel. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in fact, the very last verses of Acts, spoiler alert here, um, says, Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So Luke really artfully has this kind of... um, bracketing mention mentioned the kingdom of God at the beginning and at the end and then throughout the story we're going to see how that kingdom is proclaimed and enacted through the early church now finally number seven we'll we'll pick this up next week it's a good spot to leave off Jesus' programmatic charge to his disciples also forms the outline for the book of acts we'll look at this in more depth next week but jesus says in verse 8 chapter 1 you will receive power when the holy spirit has come upon you And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So there's almost a kind of geographic outline to the book of Acts. Jerusalem is right there on the home turf. And this is uh, essentially the first six chapters of the book of Acts. Then chapters 6 through 9 gets to Judea and Samaria. So you might put it this way. In Arcadia, in throughout the Great Lakes, and then to the ends of the earth, right? Right. So then chapter 9 to the end of the book is really about that continued progression of the gospel. And one thing um, that indicates this too, um, at those two uh, movements or junctures in Acts 6 verse 7, Luke has this kind of summary statement. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And then again, when it's transitioning to the next section, section 3 at Acts 9.31, it says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So we'll see that unfold as well. All right, hope this has just whetted your appetite for our study of Acts. I'm very excited about it. Don't forget Twelfth Night Party tonight at the Parsonage between 5 and 8. Be there or be square. See you then.